Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. When the first Spanish conquistadors landed in Chile back in 1532, what they encountered was the largest and most technologically advanced civilization in South America. The Incan Empire was rich in all sorts of goods the Spanish prized, especially food, textiles, coca, and of course gold. At its height, the Incan Empire stretched for nearly 3,000 miles, all the way from present-day Ecuador across the Andes, and down to the Chilean coast. This was all served by an elaborate road system that included many jaw-dropping suspension bridges that hung hundreds of feet in the sky. They even had their own ancient internet of sorts, consisting of squads of messenger runners juiced up on coca leaves who relayed information from one place to another across hundreds of miles. The crown jewel of the Incan Empire is without a doubt Machu Picchu. The Cloud Citadel is terraced between two Andean peaks, and is almost certainly what most people think of when they think of the Incas. And yet, for as much evidence of their existence as the Incas left behind, there's still a lot about them we don't know. The Incas didn't have a traditional written language as we know it and instead appeared to keep records with an abacus-like system of knotted cords called quipus that modern scientists are only beginning to decipher today. Unfortunately, much of what we know of Incan life comes from accounts written by the very same Spanish invaders that wiped them out. The conquistador Francisco Pizarro famously conquered the Incas in 1532 with only a small number of men. But the real blow to the empire came about a decade earlier when Europeans brought smallpox with them to this new world. Some epidemiologists believe disease may have wiped out as many as 90% of the Incan people, which of course made it that much easier for the Spanish to conquer what remained. But despite how far and wide the Incan empire stretched at its height, one thing you should know is there were still some places they refused to go. One such place was a tiny island just off the Chilean coast that lies close to the 35th parallel. It's a teardrop-shaped offshoot of the Andes, jutting up out of the water where the Mall River empties into the Pacific Ocean. They called that island Chiloé, which roughly translates to the place of the seagulls. It was here the Incan Empire stopped because it was believed that this island formed a demarcation line between the worlds of light and shadow. Ancient European map makers used to decorate the outer edges of maps with warnings about the unknown regions of uncharted ocean. They'd sometimes say that beyond those known places, here there be serpents, or other such descriptive alerts. In truth, such warnings were simply a means of warning sailors against the great unknown. A way of filling in the gaps of their knowledge of what lie beyond, and letting travelers know they might never return. In the case of the Incas, though, it appears they had a good idea what lay beyond the edge of their empire in the place of the seagulls. 
Over the centuries, there are those who came to believe there was something dark and ancient that lived there. Something evil. For it was there on that tiny island called Chiloé. That was where the witches lived. I'm Nate Hale, off in the woods to Grandma's house I go, and this is The Conspirators. The first human inhabitants of Chiloé Island date back to around 7,000 years ago. Spread out along the island's coast are a number of middens, essentially giant garbage pits that have provided archaeologists all sorts of evidence about the ancient inhabitants. The large number of skeletons of marine birds found within, along with the mollusk shells, primitive tools, and even human bones, point to the island's first inhabitants being nomads who wandered over from the Chilean coast. The first Spaniard to lay eyes on Chiloé was Alonso de Camargo in 1540. Although it's another conquistador named Pedro de Valdivia who's credited with quote-unquote discovering Chiloé Island in 1558 after he led an expedition and claimed the archipelago for the Spanish crown. Over the years that followed, the island became known as a safe haven for pirates and privateers. It also proved to be the last stronghold for the Spanish conquistadors. During the 19th century, when the rest of Latin America was in the process of rising up against imperial rule, Chiloé remained loyal to the Spanish. When Charles Darwin set out on his historic voyage aboard the HMS Beagle, he spent over a month on Chiloé Island, during which time he wrote about the lush environment and of the variety of plant and wildlife throughout the island. In particular, Darwin noted that over 400 varieties of potatoes grew there as did a particular variety of endangered fox that came to be known as Darwin's Zorro. During his time on the island, Darwin also witnessed the aftermath of an earthquake and wrote about an unusual trick of the light that caused a rainbow to transform into a full circle before his eyes. Darwin described the native Chilotes as quiet, industrious people who managed to struggle through adversity. He was taken aback at the rampant poverty he witnessed, and also how that poverty seemed to breed superstition among the people. Darwin was amused by the antics of a cluster of sea otters tumbling into the water as the ship passed. He also noted seeing a pair of black-necked swans, which, for Darwin, were a passing curiosity and nothing more. But to the superstitious natives of Chiloé, birds of this type were thought to be a terrible omen, a sign that someone close to them would soon die. A lot of the island's architecture has an unusual Celtic influence to it. Some travelers have described the landscape as resembling something out of The Hobbit. It's also well known for its many ornate churches built during the 18th and 19th centuries. The unique stylings of these churches has earned 16 of them a classification as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. They were built by Jesuit missionaries trying to bring Christianity to the natives. When the Jesuits were expelled in 1767, the Franciscans assumed missionary duties throughout the island. But despite Christianity becoming a dominant religion throughout the Chiloé archipelago, there are still many much older myths and superstitions that still remain. One such story tells of Trauco, a forest troll who is said to drag young women into the forest and impregnate them. 
This at least seems to be a story cooked up in order to explain away some of the pregnant, unwed mothers. The Chilotes also have a legend about a creature known as the Basilisk, a creature you can find in European folklore as well. Although the creature from Chiloé has one unique trait in that it likes to suck the saliva right out of its victims' mouths. One of the most enduring legends to come from Chiloé Island is that of a mysterious ghost ship known as the Kaleochi. There are many stories about ghost ships that sail the high seas, but the Kaleochi is often cited as the oldest one of them all. According to the locals, the Kaleochi is a triple-masted white sailing vessel that seems to have a preternatural sense of when someone is drowned in the waters near the island. It is believed that the Kaleuchi will appear at the very spot where the person is drowned, and bring them on board to join their ghostly crew. Sometimes the story of the Kaleuchi gets told in the same breath as that of La Pincoya, a beautiful blonde water spirit who is generally considered to be a good omen to local fishermen. If she is spotted facing the sea, then the fishermen believe they are guaranteed to have a good catch that day. But if her back is to the water, then the fish will be few. Although some darker stories claim that if you ever dare look Lampinkoya directly in her eyes, you would be compelled to follow her into the water and drown in the depths of the ocean. Likewise, you'll also sometimes hear stories of Lampinkoya's sister, La Serena, a creature with the upper torso of a human and the tail of a fish, or... In other words, a mermaid. According to the legend, La Serena's duty is to guide the drowned souls who find their way onto the Caliucci's decks. But of all the stories and legends about Chiloé, one in particular stands heads and tails above all the rest. That of the Brujos de Chiloé, the male witches who secretly ruled the island for centuries. Which stories aren't anything new to South America... You can find plenty of other legends, such as that of La Tunda, a beautiful seductress from Ecuador, the literal daughter of the devil who likes to kidnap children and lure men into her den. In Costa Rica, they have the legend of La Segua, a raven-haired beauty who can be seen hitchhiking through the rural areas and preys upon unsuspecting men who let her into their vehicles. But on Chiloé, there is one significant difference you should know between the stories of the Brujos and all the other legends I previously described. The story of the Brujos is the only one that may be true. We have evidence of this because back in 1880, Chiloé Island became the site of what is most likely the last significant witch trial in South America. The English travel writer Bruce Chatwin stumbled across the story of the Brujos back around 1975. He learned that these male witches had been running a protection racket on the island magically cursing or even murdering anyone who got in their way. We don't know exactly where these witches, or warlocks if you prefer, first came from, although it's widely surmised that their particular brand of black magic arose in a collision of existing superstitions crossed with the teachings of the Jesuit missionaries. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Chilean folk legends told of two opposing breeds of shaman among the indigenous tribes. On one side were the Machi. These were the revered healers and medicine men whose job included interpreting dreams, communing with spirits, and serving as the oracles of their community. On the opposite side were the Kalku. These were the warlocks, the ones you really didn't want to mess around with. Most natives didn't even like to talk about them for fear of what would happen to them if they did. These practitioners of black magic were thought to have started out as machi before they broke bad. Overcome by greed and the power of evil spirits, these kalku were thought to operate in the shadows, manipulating people and events for their own dark purposes. It's believed that once the Spanish conquistadors entered the picture that they brought their own influence on these folk legends by introducing stories of European witches. But since Chile was a male-dominated society, these stories of witches became retold so that all the practitioners of the dark arts were now men. In 1786, a Spanish naval officer and cartographer named José de Moraleda y Montero arrived in the Chiloé Islands. One legend that sprang out of the man's visit was that Moraleda made the mistake of challenging a machi shaman in a magical skills competition. Moraleda lost and the shaman caused the man's ship to run aground. During the shaman's victory lap, Moraleda was also forced to hand over a book of spells he'd brought with him from Europe. Although there is no trace of this magical competition ever taking place according to Morleta's own writings, he did write that the local witches and sorcerers considered him to be a powerful sorcerer himself. The legend states that it is that book of spells Morleta left behind that became the center of the Brujo cult. According to records from the trial in 1880, this cult was known as La Recta Provincia, the Righteous Province. And if half the stories that came out in that trial are true then this cult secretly ruled the island for the better part of two centuries. The elite members of this cult referred to themselves as the Mayoria, the majority. To become a member of the secret society, you needed to endure a lengthy and complicated initiation ritual, one designed to reverse a Christian baptism. This first involved bathing in a freezing cold river over the course of anywhere from 15 to 40 nights. Then the new initiate had to run naked through the jungle declaring their dedication to the devil. The final step was to commit a ritual human sacrifice of a close friend or family member. Once you became a full-fledged member of the Righteous Province, you were now part of the inner circle of these indigenous mafioso who secretly ran things behind the scenes. They kept local farmers in fear, forcing them to hand over food or money by threatening to curse them, or worse unleashing some of the terrible creatures they commanded. They seldom had to resort to physical violence. For example, it's claimed that one curse they could cast would cut the victim, like a wound from an invisible knife. But the supernatural protection racket fell apart in 1880 when over a hundred members of the Righteous Province were arrested and interrogated. Among them was a 70-year-old Chilote farmer named Mateo Conyecar. He admitted to authorities that he had been a member of the Righteous Province for more than two decades. In his confession, he explained that the cult had its own inner circle of kings and viceroys, and that they kept their headquarters in a vast cavern somewhere outside the coastal village of Kikave. It was here that Konyekar and other witnesses swore the cult kept their most treasured possessions. This included the Book of Spells given to them by José Moraleda, and a magically endowed bowl filled with water that could show you the future. 
If you read a lot of the stories told by Konyekar and the other arrested cult members, they all sound pretty out there. One witness during the trial of 1880 claimed each warlock carried a pet lizard with them that they could strap to their heads in order to imbue themselves with magic abilities. Another claimed the warlocks could talk with seahorses, Aquaman style, in order to pass messages back and forth with the ghost ship, the Kaliuchi. Other members claimed some of them possessed magical waistcoats made from human skin that, depending on which version you subscribe to, was either flayed from the corpse of a recently buried Christian or made from the skin of a dead virgin or sorcerer. Once dried and cured, the skin was stitched together into a magical garment that gave the wearer the ability to fly. When the Brujo needed a spy or a messenger, they would abduct an adolescent girl, strip them naked, and force them to drink a magic elixir. This potion was so noxious it would cause the victim to vomit up their own intestines, after which the girl would transform into a long-legged bird and would be forced to do the Brujo's bidding. Konyekar went on to testify that during his first visit to the cave 20 years earlier, he was ordered to bring some meat for what he described as the animals that lived inside. He did as he was told, and he went and murdered a small child for his flesh. The cult's king back then was a man named Jose Matterman, and he escorted Konyekar to deliver the child's remains. He said in order to enter the cavern, Matterman first performed a ritual dance, then revealed the cave's entryway, which was covered over with earth and grass. He also needed to use a piece of metal he referred to as the alchemist key to open the entryway. When the door finally opened, two creatures rushed out at them. The first of these was a goat-like monster called a chivato. Konyekar didn't spend much time describing this creature, but rather focused on the other, far more dangerous denizen of the cave, a creature known as the Umbunche. At first glance, the creature that rushed out of the darkness appeared to be a naked old man. That is until Konyeka realized how hideously deformed this creature was. The Mbunche started out as a human baby, but what happened to it after that is nothing short of horrifying. Bruce Chatwin described it as such. When the sect needs a new Mbunche, the council of the cave orders a member to steal a boy child from six months to a year old. The deformer, a permanent resident of the cave, starts work at once. He disjoints the arms and legs and the hands and feet, then begins the delicate task of altering the position of the head. Day after day, and for hours at a stretch, he twists the head with a tourniquet until it is rotated through an angle of 180 degrees. That is, until the child can look straight down the line of its own vertebrae. There remains one last operation for which another specialist is needed. At full moon, the child is laid on a workbench lashed down with its head covered in a bag. The specialist cuts a deep incision under the right shoulder blade. Into the hole, he inserts the right arm and sews up the wound with thread taken from the neck of a ewe. When it was healed, the invunche is complete. The Infunche was then kept naked, confined below ground, and fed primarily on human flesh. The child would receive no education, nor would it ever be allowed to learn human language. The only things the creature was taught was hatred and to obey the cult's leaders, Chatwin referred to as the Committee of the Cave. Creating the Infunche was considered a central part of the Brujo cult society. When one Infunche died, another was created to take its place. 
all of which leaves us with a portrait of a group of truly evil men who ruled through enslavement, torture, and fear. The records from the trials of 1880 and 1881 show the investigation into the cult's activities. Started after the Chilewe government opened an investigation into a rash of suspicious poisonings, that claimed the lives of several people over the preceding years. Even if we are to dismiss all the stories of black magic and monsters, there still remain many stories of cold-blooded murder. The governor of Chiloé did not believe in witchcraft and instead announced that the members of the righteous province were nothing more than a mob of thieves and killers. One of Mateo Conyecar's co-defendants was José Aro, a Mapuche carpenter who went on to confess to one of these murders. Aro told the court he was ordered to kill a couple named Francesco and Maria Cardenas, who had gotten into an argument with Conyecar. Aro claimed to have poisoned the couple by slipping arsenic into their drinks. He added that he believed their deaths went unnoticed because the potion had been prepared according to a black magic formula. Conyecar himself later admitted to arranging for the murder of the mistress of a jilted wife's husband after he was approached by the wife who learned her husband had been unfaithful. For this, Konyekar collected a fee of four yards of calico. A newspaper columnist published an article in June 1880 in which he pointed out that back in 1849, the alleged former leader of the righteous province, Domingo Nahukin, vanished without a trace. The man's wife was certain that her husband had been killed by José Maraman, the man who took the throne after Domingo's disappearance. Maraman was also the man who Mateo Conyecar said accompanied him to the mysterious underground caverns of the Imbunche. But according to some of the cult members, it would be impossible to prove Nahokin was murdered since Maraman dropped his body into the ocean with a large rock chained to his neck. All of this, it turned out, had been reported to the Chilean authorities right around the time it happened. But... If this was true, then why did Chile's government wait more than 30 years to do anything about it? The question may have a very political answer. In 1880, Chile was embroiled in fighting with Peru and Bolivia in a brutal four-year conflict known as the War of the Pacific. This left the majority of the country's soldiers occupied in a fierce battle to the north. This also left the country virtually defenseless to the west which left open an opening for Chile's old rival Argentina to begin massing forces along that border. So much internal strain regarding Chile's sovereignty left the government feeling vulnerable and highly unwilling to abide any army deserters. According to historian Mike Dash, the primary motivation for the mass persecution of the righteous province may have had less to do with murder and black magic and much more to do with the allegations that the native Chilotes might be sheltering deserters right along with their very own secret society of warlocks. Although more than a hundred members of the righteous province were rounded up by police, the vast majority of them were released with only minor charges. Part of the problem was, since none of the governors believed in witchcraft, most of the group's members hadn't broken any earthly laws. Only a small handful of group members ever saw any real jail time. Two members of the cult were sentenced to 15-year terms for manslaughter. Ten more were sent to prison for membership in a so-called unlawful society. Mateo Conyeca received three years in prison, while his brother Domingo was sent away for a year and a half. 
If you read between the lines in many of the accounts of the confessions of the people arrested in 1880, you can't help but wonder how many of those confessions were coerced. The Chilean governors were determined to find those army deserters at any cost. There's also a possible secondary motivation for the crackdown in that the government may have finally grown fed up with having a group such as the Righteous Province operating as their own shadow government right beneath their noses. Today, Chiloé has become a trendy tourist destination. In recent years, the Chilean government has begun drawing up plans for a major bridge leading to the mainland. They also recently began allowing air travel directly to the island. A few travel writers have gone to the island asking about the possibility that the warlocks still exist. And from the articles I've read, they mostly get cagey responses that amount to, maybe. Did the trials of 1880 really break up the secret cult of witches, ending their reign of terror forever? Or did the Brujo continue to operate as they always had from the shadows? If you ask many of the locals, they'll insist it was all real. The witches, the monsters, the ghost ship, every bit of it. Whether the members of the Righteous Province could really do black magic or not might not matter so much. Because so many people who live on the island believe they could. Fear of black magic was enough to keep the Incas away centuries ago. And that force remains as strong as ever. Most of the Chipotes who get interviewed today remain frustratingly vague as to where the Brujo may have gone. Or if they know the whereabouts of the mysterious cave of the Imbunche. It's clear, reading some of these interviews, that many of these people are just as fearful of the Brujo today as they would have been centuries ago. In 2006, the local courts issued a restraining order against Manuel Cardenas and his brother-in-law that prohibited them from coming within 10 yards of an elderly farmer named Jose Marquez. It turned out that Cardenas had gotten into a physical altercation with the old man. According to Cardenas, he snapped one day after his father had been suffering from decades of chronic pain, and he couldn't bear to stand by and do nothing anymore. Cardenas said he met with a shaman who informed him his father's illness was the result of a curse that Jose Marquez placed on him back in 1992. You see, according to the shaman, Jose Cardenas was more than just a simple farmer. He was a warlock. Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have a new Patreon supporter to thank. Thank you so much to Selena for signing up and helping support the show. If you're interested in helping support the show by signing up on Patreon, you can get access to all sorts of goodies including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our exclusive bonus mini-episodes. I just released a new one of those in which I tell the strange story of the impossible discovery a group of Russian geologists made in the Siberian wilderness. Another great way you can help support the show is by subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's magical algorithms and helps us climb the podcast charts. This makes it easier for even more people to find our show and grows our conspirators' family even more. If you're not on Apple, not to worry. We're also on Stitcher, Google Play, and many of your other favorite podcast apps. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can hear our entire back catalog of shows. Check us out on social media as well. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and our Facebook page. You can even send us an email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com and let us know how we're doing. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time.